Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Glad to have you in our service this morning. And I want to take a minute and greet all you folks across the street at the video venue and also all of you folks who are joining us online today, wherever you might be. And speaking of all you folks who are joining us online, I want to show you guys a picture. I want you to take a look at this picture real quick before we begin. Uh, this was taken a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that's, uh, of course, me on the left or on the right there. And then that's uh, a girl named Christine Marienfeld who lives in Germany. She lives near Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, long story short, she has a friendship with a young woman in our church. And as a result of that friendship, she joins us in worship every single Sunday from her home in Germany. Uh, and so I'm assuming she's watching right now. So uh, not, not this way, that, that way. Everybody kind of turn back that way maybe and, and just, uh, we probably look really stupid, Christine, but we love you and we're so thankful uh, to have you joining us along with everyone else that joins online. But what a cool thing uh, through technology to know that we can reach and impact uh, people all around the world. She uh, was here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were able to meet and snap that picture in the commons. So it was a really good experience. Hey, grab your Bible if you got one and go to the Gospel of John. And when you get to the Gospel of John, I want you to find the fourth chapter, the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter. This is the final week of a very special sermon series we've been involved in called What If? And uh, I think it's been a very, personally, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a very challenging study as we've asked some really important questions over the last several weeks. I mean, for example, we asked the question, what if I were more thankful? What would my life look like? What would that mean if I were more thankful? And then we asked the question, this, these next two are really powerful. What if I took control of my thoughts? And then what if I took control of my words? And then the last time we talked from this series, we asked the question, what if I had a greater faith? Well, we're going to finish that series this weekend by asking the question, what if I saw everyone the same way Jesus does? You probably, if you've looked in your bulletin already, uh, you've seen that we've got a pretty lengthy passage of Scripture in front of us. That's because it is a passage that describes an encounter in detail, an encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman one day. I'm sure it's a familiar passage. To many of you, we're not going to read all of it in its entirety when we stand together to read the Scripture like we always do. I'm just going to read a portion of it, but I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to work our way through this passage as we go through the message. But let me just begin by kind of setting the context or the stage for you. Uh, Jesus and His disciples are in Judea when we open our Bibles to John chapter 4, that's in the south side of Palestine. They were traveling to Galilee, which is on the north side of Palestine, and so they needed to travel through the land of Samaria. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, you know that Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and that's even an understatement in itself. The Samaritans were a mixed race of people, the result of Jewish ancestors who disobeyed the uh, will of God and the command of God, and they married uh, into other ethnic groups. And so from a Jewish perspective, Samaritans were half-breeds. And because of that, Jews looked at Samaritans with a level of contempt that was so great that when they needed to travel from Judea to Galilee in the same situation that Jesus and the disciples are today, they would oftentimes add three days to their journey so they could travel around the land of Samaria and not even set foot on their soil. That's how deep this level of animosity was between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's where we find Jesus and his disciples. So having said that, stand together with me wherever you are. 
uh, in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. If you're a guest with us today first, man, I'm so glad you're here. It's always a joy to welcome guests into our services. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service every week. We stand uh, in the example of the Scriptures uh, in the Old Testament in reverence for God's Word, and uh, we're doing that now. I'm just going to read verses 5 through 10 as we just begin this passage this morning. So he came to a town in Samaria called Suhar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to drink water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans.'" Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. All right, there it is. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You can be seated this morning. All right. As I said, please keep your Bible open there to John chapter 4 because we're going to be referencing that again. What I want to do more than anything else this morning is just focus on answering our question what if we saw everyone the same way Jesus does? And so while there'll be some explanation as a part of our message today, it'll be heavy, heavy, heavy on application. So let's just jump right in. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one. What if we saw everyone the same way Jesus does? Well, then number one, we would see opportunities everywhere we go. We would see opportunities everywhere we go. It's clear from the text when you begin to read it that Jesus and his disciples did not intend to spend very much time in this place. They just wanted to eat some lunch and move on. But all that changed when Jesus, who was tired when he arrived and decided to rest here by Jacob's well while the other disciples went for food, saw a Samaritan woman come to draw water. And because Jesus was always looking for opportunities with people, he engaged this woman by asking her for a drink. Now, here's what we need to understand. This was actually a very scandalous thing for Jesus to do. And you may not be aware of that until you really focus in on her response. In verse 9, she said, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, folks, that statement was grounded in years and years of history. I already told you that the Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. To them, they were unclean and less than human, and so that means they wouldn't have anything to do with them. They especially would never be caught eating or drinking after them. Now, I don't know about you, because I don't know everything there is to know about your life, just like you don't know everything there is to know about my life, but we may not have this level of racial prejudice inside of us, but if we're honest today, all of us, we would have to say that there are people that we look at in life that we consider to be too different or too offensive or too wrong to associate with. And sadly, that's a really big deal in our country right now as a lot of dividing lines are being drawn in our country based on things like race and religion. And I think we all know that we need to be praying for our country on a daily basis. But you never, everyone say never, never you never, ever see anything like this coming from Jesus who just looks at people and sees nothing more than need. Because of past conflicts between Jews and Samaritans, most Jews in Jesus' day would have either chosen not to acknowledge this woman when she arrived at the well or just treat her like she was nothing and then justify it by their race and their heritage and their religion. But what does Jesus do here? 
Well, he looks at her. She's a racial, a religious, and a cultural enemy to him as a Jew. And in spite of that, he engages her in a conversation. Why? Because Jesus saw an opportunity to connect with this woman in a way that would make a spiritual impact on her life. Jesus saw opportunities everywhere he went, and you and I need to be the same way. If we saw people the way Jesus did, or the way Jesus does, we would see opportunities everywhere we go. Right down next to number two, the second application point. If we saw everyone the same way Jesus does, we would treat all people with dignity and respect. We would treat all people with dignity and respect. It's not only surprising that Jesus would ask a Samaritan for a drink, it's also surprising that he would engage in conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman. And I say that because in addition to prevailing racist attitudes in first century Palestine, women were looked at by men with a certain level of contempt. But if you're familiar at all with the life of Jesus, you know that he made a habit of breaking down these kinds of barriers everywhere he went. And here's why. Because all people, everyone is equal in God's eyes. Everyone No one, no matter their race or their politics or their religion or their past, is beyond redemption. And the Bible makes that very clear. Everyone is equal in God's eyes. Everyone. How many of you know that's true? Everyone. Now, a little bit later in the New Testament, now after Jesus would have died on the cross, been buried in the tomb, risen from the dead, and returned to glory, after uh, the church would have begun in Acts chapter 2, after the church would have grown, and now the gospel message is being preached to all men everywhere, the apostle Paul, when he wrote the letter of Galatians, in Galatians 3.28, would write these words. He would write, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Everyone is equal. In God's eyes, everyone is equal. And this is such an important point for us to grasp this morning because if we're ever going to see people the same way Jesus does, then we've got to see people, whoever they are, wherever they are, as equals. We've got to see all people standing on the same level ground that we're standing on. It's the same level ground at the foot of the cross because all of us are sinners and all of us have need. Everyone is equal. That means, if we're going to be really honest this morning, that means we need to let go of our biases and we need to let go of our prejudices and we even need to let go at times of our personal preferences. Every single person on the planet matters to God and that means every single person on the planet should matter to you and me. Everyone that you and I lock eyes with every day of our lives is somebody that matters to God. Let's pick our story back up in verse 10. Verse 10 is where we stopped reading, but let's pick it up in verse 10 and read down through verse 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus continues the conversation, and it's clear that she doesn't understand what he's talking about. All right, I got to say something. I had something in my pocket, and it just spilled onto my pocket, okay? Here it is. It's because of you. It's breath spray because I love my church. And it spilled. 
Don't let that be a distraction to you, okay? <laughs> it smells really good. Now, you and I, as we read this story, as we read this story today, we understand the spiritual significance of Jesus' words, living water. They make sense to us, but this woman does not understand them at all. And the reason why is because in first century Palestine, the term living water would have meant the same thing as running water. And so she's thinking about water from a literal physical standpoint. That's why Jesus said what he did in verses 13 through 15. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman who still didn't understand said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. So, and listen to me. Look up here. This is really important. So, Jesus takes the conversation to a whole new level. She doesn't understand what he's meaning when he talks about the spiritual significance of living water. So, he gets to the spiritual need of her life. Beginning in verse 16 through 18, he says, look back in your text. He says, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And that brings me to the third thing I want you to write down in your notes, the third application point. Write down next to number three. If we saw everyone the same way Jesus does, we would learn to speak the truth without condemnation. We would learn to speak the truth without condemnation. I told you, she doesn't understand what Jesus means by the words living water, and so he focuses on the spiritual need of her life by asking her the question, go call your husband when Jesus already knew how she would answer. He knew that that question would lead to the exposing of the reality of her life, that she had had five previous husbands, and the man she was living with at the time was not her husband. Let's talk about this for a moment. I need to give you some explanation from the perspective of the Scriptures, and everything I'm about to say to you comes right from the Bible. It doesn't come from our church. It doesn't come from me. It's not my opinion or any opinion of any man that I know. This comes right from the Bible. The Bible teaches us that living together in a sexual relationship outside of marriage is not God's will for anyone. It teaches us that living together in a sexual relationship outside of marriage is not God's best for anyone, not for anyone. I know this is something that is very common today and maybe even a reality for some of you. And so if that's the case, I want you just to know that it's not in my heart today to be harsh with you or to try to beat anybody up. So just listen to me close. I don't have time to give a detailed explanation about this, but I do want to be really clear. It would be really easy for me to explain this to you, if the Bible, the New Testament, for example, just had a verse of Scripture that said something like this, living together in a sexual relationship before marriage or outside of marriage is sin. But there's no verse in the Bible like that. Probably because in Bible times, this was something that was extremely rare, especially among the Jews. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is silent on this issue because there are multiple verses in the New Testament that make it clear that what the Bible calls sexual immorality, I know that's a harsh term, but what the Bible calls sexual immorality is not God's will for anyone. In fact, the Bible calls that sin. 
Now, I'm going to put a whole big list of verses on the screen so that you can see what I mean when I say multiple verses. These are all verses in the New Testament that talk about sexual immorality. This is not everything in the New Testament. This is just a selection. You can see Acts 15, 20, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, 6, 13, and 18, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Galatians 5, 19, Ephesians 5, 3, Colossians 3, 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and Jude verse 7. Now, here's what all those verses have in common. Every single one of those verses includes the same Greek word. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The same Greek word that is translated sexual immorality in our modern English Bibles. It's the Greek word porneia. If you've got an older translation, maybe like an original King James Version, what they sometimes call the authorized version, the word there is fornication. But in modern English Bibles, it's the words sexual Immorality. It comes from the Greek word porneia. We get the English word pornography from the Greek word porneia uh, as an example. Now, the literal meaning of the Greek word porneia is unlawful lust. That's the literal meaning of the word, and it's specifically used in the Bible to describe any kind of unlawful, another word you could use it would be illicit, any kind of unlawful or illicit sexual activity or behavior. It's unlawful according to God. Unlawful according to God. This includes premarital sex, adultery, and any other sexual activity that takes place, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, any other sexual activity that takes place, listen to me really close, outside of the covenant bond, the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, listen to me. This is a very consistent and this is a very clear teaching in the New Testament and in the Bible, and it's not something that can be ignored, and it's not something that can be explained away. God created every single one of us. We all understand that, right? Everyone say, right. God created every single one of us. That means every single desire that we have in our lives was created by God. Every physical desire, emotional desire, mental desire, whatever it is, it was created by God. That means God created the desire for sexual intimacy and sexual expression. It's inside of us as a result of God's creative power. And he created it, first of all, for practical reasons. That's why he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But beyond that, the Bible teaches us that he created that that physical desire for pleasure as well. That's one of the meanings behind the description of husbands and wives becoming one flesh. And you find that all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. But God, who created this desire, also created the setting for that expression. And again, that's inside the covenant and bond of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I could literally go on talking about this for a long time because there's so much in the Scriptures, but we need to stop and get back to the story. Jesus knew this woman's situation. He knew everything about her life. And I want you to notice something. In the conversation, he didn't ignore it, he didn't condemn it, and he didn't encourage it. He simply addressed the reality of it in a very direct way to let her know that it was an area of her life that was going to need to be dealt with. But he did not condemn her. Do you see that? He did not condemn her. In fact, here's an interesting thing. If you were to take your Bible and you would go, we're looking at John chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, going all the way down to verse 42. If you would look at that passage sometime today, you would find that the conversation Jesus has with this woman consists of about 20 of the verses in this passage, about 20 of the verses. Of those 20 verses, there are only three where he talks to her about her sinful life. The rest 
of the conversation is all about Jesus making a connection with her that would allow him to tell her how she could connect with God. When it came to the subject of sin, he said as much as he needed to say, he said enough to open the door to truth and conviction. When you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you find that Jesus, he had the right to condemn everyone on some level that he ever met. Only Jesus could do that because only Jesus lived a sinless and a perfect life. He could have condemned on some level every single person that he met, but he never did that. He was harsh with religion just hypocrites, but he never condemned the sinners that he met. Instead, he said things like this in John chapter 3 and verse 17. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And what was the result of that, folks? What was the result? The result was that broken people came to Jesus in droves for the kind of mercy and forgiveness that leads to a new life, and that needs to be our approach with people as well. If I saw everyone the same way that Jesus did, I would speak the truth without condemnation. And listen, so I'm not misunderstood, don't you dare put words in my mouth this morning. I am fully aware of the ugliness of sin. All you have to do is look at the cross and see the humiliating, agonizing, and brutal death that Jesus died to pay for our sins. But I'm going to tell you again, if we want to be used by God to make a difference in the lives of people who are a long way from God, then we need to do a whole lot more for them than just point out the reality of their sin. Our purpose is not to condemn. Our calling is not to condemn. It's not to ignore sin like it's not there, but it's also not to condemn. Our purpose is to connect with people and point them in the direction of a God who loves them and a Savior who gave his life for them. And that's what Jesus is doing here when he says to this woman, because she's not picking up on what he means when he's talking about living water. And so that's what he's doing when he says to her, go call your husband. And it worked. It worked. Pick it up in verses 19 through 24. This is right after Jesus just told her everything about her life. Verse 19, the woman said, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when... True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail here, so I'll just say this. Whenever I used to read this story for a long time, for a long time, I used to believe that at this point, the woman brings up this issue of religion you know, what Samaritans believe as opposed to what Jews believe. I used to believe that she brought up this issue of religion to try to change the subject. I used to think that as Jesus was talking to her, that her heart was being penetrated, she was coming under conviction, and it didn't make her feel very comfortable, and so she began to try to change the subject by asking questions about religion. I've been in situations before where I've been sharing the gospel with somebody, confronting them about the need of their life with the truth of the gospel, and I can tell that it's becoming uncomfortable for them. They're getting convicted, and so they ask me some question that comes right out of the blue, like in the midst of the personal discussion, it's like, well, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Or what about all the people who never heard the name of Jesus? What's going to happen to them? Or some arbitrary question. Those aren't the questions that are on their heart. They're just trying to get out of the discussion that's bringing the conviction to their heart. And I used to think that's what the woman was doing here, but I don't think that any longer. I don't think that at all. I think she's fully engaged, and I think she's actually just saying, what's my next step? What do I really need to do to get right with God? And here's why I say that. Let me give you a little bit of explanation. 
We know that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. The Samaritans' religion was very different than the Jews. Let me give you a couple of examples how. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the books that were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament. And in addition to that, they had a kind of a creative way of adjusting biblical history in those five books to suit themselves, saying that it was a mountain in Samaria where Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his son Isaac and where Moses first built an altar to worship God. If you know the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. And they did that so that they could make a nearby mountain in Samaria as holy a place to them as Jerusalem was to the Jews. So I really believe her question was this. Listen, Jesus, I'm tracking with you. I'm feeling what you're saying, but I'm confused because my religion teaches one thing and your religion teaches another. So what is it that I really need to do next? And Jesus makes it really, really simple by looking at her and just saying, God wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'd be lying to you, friends. I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't struggle a little bit with this part of their encounter because I can sometimes get bogged down in the details of things. Anybody else here like that? I can sometimes get bogged down in the details, but Jesus kept it really, really simple. There were other things that he could have said to her in that moment, but he chose not to. For example, he said, if she said, but what do I really need to do? He could have said something like, well, first we need to discuss the problem with the way you Samaritans interpret certain passages in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because you're way off base on those things. But he didn't say that. He could have said, you know what, we need to talk about the Old Testament as a whole because you don't accept all of the Old Testament, but in order to worship God in truth, you really have to have the right understanding of scriptural authority. But he didn't say that. He could have said, let's, let's get back to this whole business of you having five husbands and now living with a man who's not your husband. I'm not finished talking about that, not by a long shot. But he didn't say that either. He didn't engage this woman in any kind of a biblical debate he didn't condemn her for the mistakes of the past and the present. He just told her how she could connect with the living God, and it worked. It worked. Look at verses 25 and 26. Her heart's continuing to be drawn to him. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let me give you the fourth application point. Right down next to number four. If we saw everyone the same way Jesus does, and this is really critical, friends, if we saw everyone the same way Jesus does, we would see that winning souls is more important than winning arguments. We would see that winning souls is more important than winning arguments. Being a Christian is not merely about intellectually accepting certain propositional statements as truth. Jesus says God wants worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The word spirit doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit there. It refers to the human spirit. Jesus is saying we don't worship the Father through external conformity to a, list, a certain list of rules and regulations and rituals. That's not what he's looking for. He wants people who worship him honestly and openly and sincerely from the heart spontaneously in at times. The word truth refers to worshiping God in a way that's consistent with what the Bible, which is the truth, reveals about who God is. But we, let's just all acknowledge this morning that that's an ongoing process for all of us. We don't all, all know everything that the Bible has to say about God. We don't understand all the realities of who God is. I don't think we do. In fact, let me just ask you here. Anybody here, anybody here this morning be able to testify that the minute you were saved, you understood everything there was to know about God? Anybody? 
I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. That's almost 50 years ago now. Almost 50 years ago, and 50 years later, almost 50 years later, I can look at everything that I know about God, and I feel like it doesn't even scratch the surface. Anybody else? It's an ongoing process. I've had so many discouraging conversations over the years with Christians whose focus was more on making sure everyone agreed with them on every detail of biblical interpretation than on reaching people who were lost and a long way from God. And if I'm going to be honest, I, I have to say that I've been, I've been that person at times myself. But while I would never leave out or compromise essential truth when it was, came to preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel, I don't ever want to make winning arguments more important than winning souls. I think, over, I think back to the, so many years that, that I spent. I mean, we don't do it this way anymore because, because times and change and people change and methodology changes. But I spent so many years in ministry just going out and, and, and being in people's homes and, and talking to people in different places face-to-face and asking them questions to try to diagnose their spiritual condition and then sharing with them the truth of the, of the gospel to try to help lead them to Christ. And I, I think about all the times I did that in all the different settings and circumstances. And I can tell you that there was never a time when I sat down to share the gospel with somebody that I ever talked to them about dispensational truth or eschatology or whether or not you believed in classic Calvinism versus classic Arminianism, and many of you probably don't even know what those things mean. But I did talk to them about the fact that we're all sinners, and on our own, none of us can save ourselves. We're all helpless and hopeless on our own, but we have a God who loved us so much that he did something about it for us by sending his one and only unique son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and if we put our faith and trust in him, our sin can be forgiven, our life can be changed forever. That's not hard to understand, is it? It's hard for some people to accept, but it's not hard to understand. If we were going to see everyone the same way Jesus does, we would see that winning souls is more important than winning arguments. When somebody becomes a Christian, I certainly believe in discipleship and the need for them to grow in their faith and to learn more about God and to learn more about the will of God for their life. But in the beginning, it's all about understanding the grace of God. Right down next to number five, we're about done, I promise. <laughs> if we saw everyone the same way Jesus does, we would make it our goal to help all people everywhere make a life-changing connection with Jesus. We would make it our goal to help all people everywhere make a life-changing connection with Jesus. You know, one of our, our, not one of, but our mission statement here at church is to change the world, and of course we're talking about for Christ, to change the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. How many of you would agree with me when I say that our world has a lot of problems and there's a need for a lot of change in our world? A lot. Not just our world, but our country, and in particular, we're... We're shocked by what we see happening in our country most days. And we're in election season. There's a lot of people who think that we can make those changes by electing a new president. There are a lot of people who look at the racial disunity and division in our country today and think that we can solve that by creating new policies and new procedures and new strategies for dealing with conflict and conflict management. And I'm not diminishing the need for any of those things, but I'm telling you, there's not an election, there's not a policy or a procedure that can be written that brings hope to the world today. The only hope for the world today is found in Jesus. Because only Jesus can change somebody's heart. And that's why we need to make our lives and our church all about helping people make a life-changing, which leads to a world-changing 
connection with Jesus. That's what happened to the Samaritan woman in this story. Let's read the rest of it, beginning in verse 27. I want you to grab your Bible and follow me. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out to the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And this shows you how dense the disciples are. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? Didn't have any idea what he was talking about. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know, when this story began, and Brian, you can come and we'll close. Jesus was tired from his journey. He was hungry. So he sat down by a well while I sent his disciples into town to get some food. And then a Samaritan woman shows up to draw water. He engaged her in a conversation. We don't know if Jesus ever got that drink of water that he asked for, but none of that really mattered because he was able to help this woman turn her life around. And through her influence, through that, through that connection with her and her subsequent influence, many other people were able to turn their lives around as well. Listen, there is nothing more satisfying in the world than being used by God to make a difference in people's lives. Our attitude as a church can never be, you know, we've built this building, and for us, we've built this spectacular campus, this tremendous campus. Now people need to come to us. It might have worked that way at one time. It's not working that way today. That attractional method of evangelism is not working today the way it worked in past years. What we need today is an incarnational method of evangelism. That's you and me going out into our lives, into our jobs, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our community, and living out the life of Christ in such a powerful way that it can't be missed. Looking for opportunities to talk with people about spiritual things. All that happened in that town began just with a conversation. Jesus Jesus just said, give me a drink. That's how it began. A revival that changed who knows how many lives just began with a simple conversation. And there's no one here today who can't be involved in that kind of thing. When Jesus engaged that one woman in one conversation that changed her life. God took that effort and he multiplied it over and over again until we read at the end of that passage that many, many more believed. So here's, here's how we'll close. The first thing I want to say is this. If you're here in this service today across the street in our video venue or you're listening to me online and the truth is you're just like that woman at the well, you don't have to be a woman 
but you're just like that woman in the well and the fact that your life is characterized more by your mistakes than anything else. You find yourself on the outside looking in. This woman came to draw water at the sixth hour of the day. That was in the heat of the afternoon. Women in ancient days drew water early in the morning because it gave them an opportunity to avoid the heat of the day and spend time socializing with each other for just a few minutes. Why do you think it was that she didn't come until the heat of the day? It's because she was an outcast and she knew it. Because everyone looked at her and saw the reality of her life. If you're like that, if you're on the outside looking in, your life is more characterized by your mistakes than anything else. If you're not living with a hope that comes only from a right relationship with God, then that can change today. In just a few minutes, that can change for you. You might not understand everything that that means, and we can help you understand that. But if you feel God pulling and calling on your heart today, don't ignore that. Don't ignore it. The other thing is this. I've prayed all week. I've prayed all week leading up to this weekend that there would be dozens, if not hundreds of people in our church who would walk out the door with the conviction that I need to be like Jesus in this part of my life. I need to notice the need around me and the opportunities around me. I need to be courageous enough to open my mouth and start a conversation and trust God to do what only God can do. I'm praying that's what happens. Don't walk out the door today and think that you did what a Christian is supposed to do by listening to this message. we got to take this with us and put it into practice. Father in heaven, thank you for a chance to talk.